0: From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 77, we feature The Dawson's Creek Principle by Musa Okwonga, first published in issue 3 in December 2011. I'm about to make a confession which will perhaps make me several mortal enemies, and which will certainly make me grateful that few of you know where I live. But watching football over the last few years has really made me pine for Dawson's Creek. There, I said it. And for those of you who are not currently recoiling in horror, who remain ignorant of that TV show, I should briefly recap, and then swiftly explain myself. So, for the uninitiated, Dawson's Creek was a US teen drama which was on air for about five years from the late 90s. Set in the idyllic fictional town of Capeside, Massachusetts, it followed the lives of a handful of photogenic youths going through the angst of personal growth. It was basically Adrian Mole directed by MTV, and I found it oddly compelling. The show was named after Dawson Leary, James Vanderbeek, who seemed to spend each show in a permanent gurn. The show centred around his fitful and ultimately unsuccessful attempts to win the love of Joey Potter, played by Katie Holmes. Attempts which failed primarily due to Dawson's unparalleled self-obsession. But though the show was named after Dawson, he wasn't its star. That accolade went to Pacey Witter, Joshua Jackson, the brooding underdog whose increasingly magnificent swagger eventually saw him get the girl. This programme has been on my mind recently, as I continue to think about football. After all, my favourite sport is full of what we can call Dawson's Law, which states that, when a team seems immediately dependent on one individual, it's most probably dependent upon someone else. The most striking example of Dawson's Law came when I was watching Brazil win their fifth World Cup title in 2002. During that tournament, much of the talk, quite rightly, was of Ronaldo's renaissance following the trauma of the 1998 World Cup final, of his eight goals in seven matches, including the two in the final. But it seemed to me that he was playing the Dawson role, that he wasn't, in fact, the team's true talisman. That honour, in my view, went to Rivaldo, who, that year, played Pacey Witter to perfection. My indelible memories of the 2002 tournament are almost all of his play, Not of his appalling feigned injury in the first round against Turkey, an act which lost him what few neutral fans he once had, but of his intervention every single time that the Brazil show needed someone to deliver the killer lines. In the last 16, as Belgium held them goalless, he unleashed a deflected strike that eased his teammates' nerves. In the quarter final against England, it was his laconic equaliser on the cusp of half-time that changed the game's momentum. In the semi-final, He set the tone with three long-distance drives that served notice to Rushtu Rechber, the Turkey goalkeeper. And in the final, though Ronaldo struck twice, it was twice as a result of a Rivaldo assist. The first a shot spilled by the previously flawless Oliver Kahn, and the second a sublime dummy that made room for Ronaldo to pass the ball home from the top of the box. The reason that players like Rivaldo stay curiously unsung is partly due to PR. Very often the footballer's persona masks the subtlety and effectiveness of what they are doing on the pitch, and that's why the pacey witter of the Premier League is possibly Benoit Asuakoto. Asuakoto is best known for his interviews, in which he professes to treat football as nothing more than a job, which is a shame, as his outspokenness draws attention away from his considerable defensive capabilities. While there are others in the Tottenham Hotspur back four, such as Ledley King and the aptly named Michael Dawson, who often take great applaudits, it's Asu Okoto whose stats are most striking. In the 2009-10 Champions League season, according to Duncan Alexander of Opta, Asu Okoto averaged more interceptions per minute, the sign of a player who anticipates rather than reacts to an attacking threat, than AC Milan's Alessandro Nesta, Real Madrid's Ricardo Carvalho, Chelsea's Branislav Ivanovic or Manchester United's Patrice Evra. In the same season, in the Premier League, he made one interception every 23.6 minutes, which saw him sitting comfortably clear of his rivals at the top of the league table for this statistic. While these facts don't, of course, prove that he is the best defender in the division, they do suggest that he is substantially underrated. Another place that we have seen the Dawson-Pacey dynamic in recent years is at the base of the AC Milan midfield. Gennaro Gattuso, all bustle, bristle and beard, was for many years the Dawson figure, instantly eye-catching and synonymous with the grit that drove his club side to two Champions League titles. But alongside him, in quiet but insistently effective toil, was Massimo Ambrosini, who would in time go on to captain the Rossoneri. Ambrosini's numbers, helpfully supplied by Opta, are his most impressive advocate. Since August 2006, the summer when injury ruled him out of Italy's World Cup winning campaign, AC Milan's win ratio has been 8 percentage points higher with him in the team. And over the last two seasons, the most recent of which saw them take an unexpected league title, their win ratio is 12 percentage points greater when he is in the team. Dawson's law, then, is something that many footballers can and should invoke in defence to criticism. They can argue that their play is silently integral to their team's success. Andrew Cole, or Andy Cole as he then was, never recovered from Glen Hoddle's excoriation in the late 90s, that he needed five chances to score a goal for England. Though Cole could have pointed out that a conversion rate of 20% is actually pretty good for a striker, he could also have cited Dawson's Law. In this context, his contribution to a multitude of goals throughout his career, due to his often unheralded movement off the ball. Of course, YouTube has been invaluable in helping us to apply Dawson's Law, in that it's given millions of us the opportunity to review key sporting moments in detail, and work out who was really to thank for them. My favourite such moment was a brilliant goal scored by Arsenal, in the years shortly before Arsene Wenger seemed determined to turn his entire side into an award-winning team drama. The goal came in February 2002, in the Champions League, during a 4-1 home victory over Bayer Leverkusen. When Robert Pirès strode through to score Arsenal's opener after five minutes, Latching onto a sliding tackle by Patrick Vieira that doubled as a through ball, it looked at first as if the goal was all about Perez and his casual canter past the German centre-backs. What was most odd about the Frenchman's finish though, is that it was entirely unimpeded. Having run 50 or so yards with the ball, he then side-footed it home from the edge of the area without a tackler in sight. Since this goal looked too simple at first viewing, I cited Dawson's Law, suspected that the real drama had probably occurred elsewhere, away from the protagonist. And then, having feverishly reviewed the move a few more times, I saw who it was all really about. Thierry Henry, who, with his magnificent swagger, had made a long looping run to draw the attention of two Leverkusen defenders, waiting for a pass that would never come. Now that I'm fully aware of this principle, I look for its application whenever I'm watching football. Whenever a player scores a tremendous goal, I now count back two or three passes in the move to find out who might have been covertly responsible. It's an approach that I wouldn't have taken had it not been for watching Dawson's Creek. And so, if any of you are willing to have a similar epiphany, I advise you, when no one's looking, to pick up the DVD. That was The Dawson's Creek Principle by Musa Okwanga, first published in Issue 3 in December 2011. Also in Issue 3, Tim Vickery speaks to Mario Zagallo and Tostou about 1970 Pelé in the Brazilian style. Igor Rabiner on how the decline of Spartak Moscow is inextricably bound up with the fortunes of their former coach, Oleg Romantsev. Alexander Jackson on how a change of approach helped Newcastle cast off their chokers tag in the 1910 FA Cup final. And our greatest games feature looks back to Denmark 4, USSR 2 in the World Cup qualifier at Idrits Park and Copenhagen in June 1985. Issue 3, like all issues of the Blizzard, is available on a pay-what-you-like basis at theblizzard.co.uk. And while print editions may have sold out, it's still available in a range of digital formats for as little as a penny apiece. We also have print and digital subscriptions available, and you can also find the Blizzard on the Kindle and Google Play stores. If you have any comments, feedback or suggestions about these podcasts, you can email us, podcast at theblizzard.co.uk, or find us on Twitter at blizzard,